Howdy, y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Folks, if you like Tolkien, you've come to the right watering hole. I'm Chad Bornholt, Chad in Texas, and co-hosting with me today is my friend Chad High, or if you like, also Chad in Texas. Thank you, Chad. Well, y'all are in for a treat today because we have a very interesting topic lined up for you to listen and ponder over as our panel of guests discuss and tackle it right here on the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. And if you want to get on the podcast and be a member of one of our distinguished panels in the near future, our elf friends, as we call them, stay tuned after the discussion and learn how you can be on the podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, well, howdy. Here at the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we bring in guests from all over the world to talk about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. This is a podcast where you can take the lead. Any Tolkien topic is fair game. Chad and I moderate a panel of four to five guests who are enthusiastic about Tolkien and his legendarium and have a topic that they not only want to pose to their fellow panelists, but also to you listeners at home. We are so glad that you are tuning in and joining us today. We think it's going to be a really fun and thoughtful discussion. So kick off your shoes and stay a while, and we'll do our best to keep you entertained, or at least from falling asleep for the next half hour or so. Well, it's the job that's never started as takes longest to finish. Yeah, I think we've talked enough. Now let's go ahead and let our Elendili, that is our elf friends, introduce themselves. Let's begin, y'all. My name is Jen. I'm from western Montana, but kind of coincidentally, I'm originally from Texas. I was first introduced to Tolkien by my mother when I was eight, and she read me The Hobbit for the first time. I fell in love with it. When I was 10, she introduced me to The Lord of the Rings. I also fell in love with that story and went on to reread it obsessively, check it out from the library. For many years, I loved to listen to the 1979 NPR Mind's Eye radio dramatization. Eventually, when I went to college, I wrote my senior thesis on The Lord of the Rings, but I wasn't really hooked on Tolkien until I read The Silmarillion for the first time. Relatively recently, um, with the Council of Westmarch, they're the Montana smile of, of the Tolkien Society. And that book pretty much changed my life as a reader and kick-started my obsession with all things Tolkien. In 2018, I joined the Tolkien Society in the UK and that's how I got here, where I am today. My name is Froda Vinja. I'm from uh, Trondheim in central Norway. Me and some friends, we were reading, uh, you know, Vonnegut and Joseph Conrad and stuff, and we were being kind of snobbish about it. A different friend of mine, he suggested I'd read The Lord of the Rings. I was 15, and I was like, come on, really? So then I read it, and uh, I've been reading it ever since for 30 years. You know, it just felt... I felt like there was some truth in there. You know, I don't mean literal truth, but a feeling of real myth, you know, that the stories and the legends uh, from my part of the world, the Northwest of Europe, just came through somehow in his writings. So I was completely fascinated and, uh, yeah, been reading ever since and collecting. Hi, I'm Vita, and I live in Houston, Texas. When it came with Lord of the Rings, I grew up as a bookworm, <laughs> and I lived and breathed books. I've always been fascinated with mythology as well. Lord of the Rings really became a major factor in my life through Joseph Campbell's book, Power of Myth, where he just really explored just how mythology has penetrated throughout our lives. And then really, when we look through human history, there's always some form of heroic story that's always been told. And as a geek, as a bookworm, as a nerd, and strictly as a gamer, you can really see the influence that Lord of the Rings has, even in the modern day world. So for, for me, it's something that is 
I think integral to just part of our lives. It's an escape from the world. It's the sense of it helps us rediscover who we are, the human spirit, the desire to go beyond just simply existing, go beyond simply just living life. And I think we really see that in his work. And it helps for me in the sense that reading Lord of the Rings is just a reminder at the end of the day that the basic simplicity of life, of who we are, the connections that we have with family, with friends, and there's just a lot more to life than simply existing. On today's episode of the Texas Talking Talk podcast, we have Jen Berry, who's going to take us through an episode that she's calling on Collecting Tolkien, a beginner's perspective. So I'll just be talking here from the perspective of an enthusiastic, enthusiastic newcomer to the world of Tolkien collecting. So I thought I'd give a little background on how I became a Tolkien collector and specifically a collector of my favorite book of his, The Silmarillion. Um, I had loved The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings for most of my life, but I never really got addicted to all things Tolkien until in March 2016, the Council of Westmarch, the Montana Smile of the Tolkien Society, started reading The Silmarillion as a group. And we just finished, too, last month. I initially approached the book with some trepidation, having tried to read it in college, but I gave up after the first chapter. Now, starting it again, I had two expectations trying it again. Either one, I would be too stupid to understand a word of it, or two, it would be utterly and mind-numbingly dull and dry and something to slog through in order to reach the real good stuff stories of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So I was pretty intimidated by The Silmarillion. Neither of the expectations I had turned out to be true. I was absolutely blown away by this book. And I think the impact on my mind and emotions and heart and soul was so dramatic because the story was the opposite of everything I expected it to be. I found myself completely staggered by the scope of Tolkien's imagination. And I found myself needing to know everything possible about him and the work he did over the course of his lifetime in creating this entire world its history, its languages, and its art. I wondered how it was possible that the mind of one person could create such a thing. And in the course of my investigations, I've discovered an entire world of Tolkien studies and scholarship, artwork, and fellowship beyond anything I expected. Not to mention, it's given me the opportunity to branch out in other areas of reading and study I wouldn't have come across if I hadn't fallen in love with the Silmarillion. I probably never would have read Beowulf or Sir Gawain and Green Knight. I wouldn't have developed any interest in Norse mythology or Arthurian legend or fairy tales in general. And I wouldn't have started dabbling in collecting other inklings as well, such as C.S. Lewis. So at this point, I've gone down the rabbit hole and I've drunk the Kool-Aid. And even though I'm just a beginner, I now have 65 different copies of the Silmarillion on my shelves in 15 languages with more on the way as well as many other books by and about the man and his works as possible. And I have no intention of stopping anytime soon. I figure it's not hoarding if it's books. Well, first, Jen, I, I just want to say that sounds like an amazing collection already, actually. Uh, I certainly don't have anywhere close to that many Silmarillions. Secondly, what you said, there is this quote uh, about the Silmarillion. I think, was it in The Guardian? How... Given little over half a century of work, did one man become the creative equivalent of a people? I always tell people, 
on the list of things of the greatest accomplishments of mankind, number one is the wheel. Number two is the Silmarillion. And number three is sliced bread. So I, when I posted my basic four books on Instagram to show off hey, that I have Lord of the Ring books, um, I was quickly countered with whether or not I had these three books that was considered vital for the collection. Um, Silmarillion, which I have on Kindle. I'm actually holding out that with Christmas coming, I'm trying to give my husband a reason and something to give me for Christmas. So I've told him, please give me that. Or the recently released illustrated Lord of the Rings book. Also, I was told I should have Children of Huron and the Book of Lost Tales in my collection. Now, I they're on my Kindle, so but I don't have hard copies because one of space we're about to move, and my husband does not like moving my boxes upon boxes, upon boxes and boxes of books. So he's literally told me if you can hold out, I'll buy you extra stuff. It's one of those I think if. Say you're meeting a newbie for the first time, completely newbie. They've either just watched the movie, they've dragged you to the bookstore, they bought, you know, the basic for 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 all of y'all. What would you suggest that they have to have in a hardbound copy in their bookshelf or on the bookshelf? Well, I mean, at a bare minimum, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, is Silmarillion, bare minimum. I think things like the history of Middle Earth can be a little intimidating. I'm intimidated by them. I think they're gorgeous books. Maybe the great tales as well, the fall of Gondolin, Baron, and Luthien, and the children of Horan is where I'd say to start. Add un- unfinished tales to that, and, and you're good to go. I have a little thing that I tell people who don't really know the Tolkien stuff at all. So I've got this little thing that I have saved on my phone that I just like copy and paste it when someone's asking what, what's what. And so I'll read that. So anyone who has never seen me say it, which a lot of people have by now, but... I'll say that right now. That'll just be my little piece here. So what I say when people ask what's what, I say, it's all Silmarillion. The whole thing is all Silmarillion. Think of the books like this. The book called the Silmarillion is like the theatrical version of the movie that Tolkien was trying to come up with. Unfinished Tales is like the deleted scenes from that movie. The Hobbit is the extended edition of that chapter of the movie. Lord of the Rings is the extended edition of that chapter of the movie. The history of Middle-earth is like the making of the movie. Children of Hurin is the extended edition of that chapter of the movie. And then you've got the great tales where you have Baron and Luthien is the extended edition and the making of that chapter of the movie. And so is Fall of Gondolin. When you see the book, Fall of Gondolin, it is the extended edition of that chapter of the movie and it's the making of that chapter of the movie. And then The Adventures of Tom Bombadil is just a book written by the characters in the movie. So there are a couple of books that haven't been mentioned so far in terms of what the Tolkien enthusiast needs on their shelves. The ones that come to my mind in terms of books that are companions to Tolkien's writing, like if you're going to read The Hobbit, you should definitely have uh, Corey Olson's Exploring the Hobbit. That should be something that belongs on your shelf. You should also have Doug Anderson's Annotated Hobbit. That also is a fantastic piece of work. The fact that Doug Anderson went in and annotated the entire work of The Hobbit 
it's just a remarkable piece of work and it definitely belongs on the Tolkien enthusiast bookshelf. In terms of the Lord of the Rings, you have to have the Mr. Hammond and Miss Skull's Lord of the Rings Reader's Companion. It changes the way in which you will read the Lord of the Rings if you read it alongside with the Companion. With that, you also need the three-volume Companion and Guide that Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull put together. That is a must for the Tolkien enthusiast. A couple of periphery things, if you want to learn more about Tolkien the individual, Carpenter's biography is something that you probably are going to need. The letters of J.R.R. Tolkien is something that you're going to want to pick up and go through. The history of Middle Earth can be daunting. I would recommend, or any of our listeners who have not picked up the history of Middle Earth, you don't need to read the history of Middle Earth cover to cover. I'd say that's not how I read it. I don't think that's how most people read the history of Middle Earth. You look in the table of contents of the history of Middle Earth, look at what things seem interesting to you at that moment, and that's what I recommend that you go and you do. I agree, Chad, and I think that for me, the most important volumes of the history of Middle Earth are the ones where there is something new, some new texts that that aren't published anywhere else, because uh, a lot of it is um, just different versions of what you find in the Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion. But I think particularly Sauron Defeated and Morgoth's Ring, they contain uh, new material that I think will be interesting to, to a lot of people. Or the nature of Middle Earth, too, that just came out this year. I think that has new stuff in it. I have not read it yet, but I've heard good things. It does. It's got a lot of new stuff, and a lot of it's hard to parse. I've been messaging back and forth with Carl while I'm reading it, and there's a lot of stuff that's hard to follow. There's a lot of number crunching, I've heard. Exactly. There's a lot of different versions of the same exact thing. And so when I'm I'm reading it, I'm wondering – you know, where, which one are we going to end up with? It's kind of, you know, how we're talking earlier about how, you know, there's different versions of everything that you've got. Well, the nature of Middle Earth, there's lots of versions of the same thing. Lots of versions. It's mostly with the beginning of time type things. When the elves were first awakened, he's trying to work out a way for all these people to have come along. Go ahead, Frida. I think it's really difficult to parse, as you said, Chad. I do think that Carl has, has done a great job in his comments are very accessible. Christopher's comments, History of Middle Earth, are quite academic in nature. And you have to really concentrate when you're reading that. But Carl has made it kind of um, accessible for everyone. So it's a great book. You could not be more right. I actually said that to him. When you're reading the notes from Christopher... Sometimes the notes are just as difficult to understand as the stuff that you're trying to read the notes on, which J.R.R. wrote. Whenever you're reading Carl's notes, it's almost like he texted you the answer. It's very informal when he's writing. It's very explanatory. It's real easy to follow. It's a lot easier to follow his notes than it was to follow the previous notes. I think Christopher was very much his father's son as far as like writing styles can be challenging for. Definitely. Well, I I would push back a little bit on the inaccessibility of Christopher Tolkien's notes in terms of the way that he structured them. I like, especially in what he does in Unfinished Tales, where he breaks up the narrative with the notes. He gives you the bit of narrative and then he gives you the notes that fill in the gaps or give you the context within the narrative. And I read a lot of academic work. I read a lot of works that are done by academics, which Christopher Tolkien was an academic. He was a lecturer. He was a professor, just like his father was. 
And most academics don't do that. They give you all of the information and then they make you go to the back of the book to give you all the notes. And Christopher doesn't do that. He, he puts the notes that give you the context that are right there with the text. So I think that actually makes it easier to read too. Having said that, Carl does a fantastic job too with Nature of Middle Earth. You can definitely see that Carl is an engineer. That's what Carl Hofstetter does. He's an, he's an engineer for NASA. You can definitely see that he's an engineer in the way that he set up the text with the notes. And I found Nature of Middle Earth to be very accessible. I thought it was a fantastic read. Yeah, the, the, the stuff that Christopher set up that way, where you can see the different indentations, that part's easy to read. But the stuff I'll talk about is his end notes, whenever he has, you know, he'll have the, then you got to go back and try and figure out what it was. Even whenever Carl is doing this stuff at the end, it was a lot easier. And like you said, it may be the engineer in me. I am more along the, the uh, mental line of the way Carl writes it. So, so uh, we both do a similar job. But again, go ahead, Fred. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean it as a criticism of uh, Christopher Chad. Really, he, he did an amazing job. I mean, without him, we would have so much less of his father's works available. So for me, you know, some of, speaking about collecting, some of my favorite books are the ones with his signature in it. It, it means a lot to me. Yeah, same here, Frida. Another thing a while ago when y'all were talking about the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, I tell everyone who is coming from the movies when they're asking, what should I read? I tell everybody that you should read the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien right after you read Lord of the Rings, because people who have only seen the movies and have not read the books. And then, you know, it, it can be a little offensive sometimes because people like us are saying that's not the real way. And it may be taken wrong because the typed word on the internet always looks offensive and and it's not really the way I intend on things saying, but, but whenever you go read the book, you answer a whole lot of questions that the movie left out, but then you have new questions that the book has presented in your mind. And there's a whole lot of questions that people think they get through reading the book and they go, oh, but what about this? What about this? The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien by Humphrey Carpenter, it answers a whole lot of those questions that are automatically put into your mind after reading that book. And then I also say the same thing about the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales. I tell everybody, read the letters right after Lord of the Rings and read Unfinished Tales right after Silmarillion. All right. So what is my favorite edition of the Silmarillion and why? And what have been highlights of my experience collecting so far? So my obsession first started with the 1977 first U.S. edition of the Silmarillion, that's where I started thinking of myself as a collector rather than a fan who just picked up books when I could find them. I had learned that there were 12 different printings of this particular book and different variants with typos on different pages. So I decided I wanted all of them. And that's how I decided or how I started to develop a methodology. I discovered there were book club editions, pirated editions, the Taiwanese version. I just fell in love with this particular book. I know it's not rare or scarce at all. I think there were 325,000 of them printed initially, which leads to another point, which is some of the prices that you find on this particular book on places like eBay are just insane. And also with a U.S. versions of books, it's easier for me in the U.S. to track down earlier copies. I had one unexpected opportunity that came up earlier this year to help out a fellow collector. He had started a 
a Silmarillion collection, a bunch of first editions, and he even had a first U.S. edition Hobbit, sadly. He lived on a houseboat, and it sank over the winter, and it took his books with it, which is, of course, a tragedy. I was horrified. But it turned out I had duplicates of the exact books that he had lost, so I was able to get in touch with him and work out getting some of those to him to start rebuilding his collection. So I thought that was a very cool thing to get to do. He was thrilled. I was thrilled. And although I couldn't help him with his Hobbit, unfortunately. So if you follow me up after Christmas, I'm pretty sure I can tell you what my favorite copy will be by then. So I will have a hard copy on hand. My favorite copy is the 2021 illustrated edition by Ted Naismith. It's got the orange slip case with the burning of the ships at Lasgar on the uh, book itself. I sent it to Chad and I sent them to Ted and had him draw on them and sign them. He signed it to me and my son. That's my favorite copy. I have two editions tied for first place. I have to say the 1997 uh, first Norwegian translation by uh, Nils Ivar It's a fantastic translation. It's a work of art in its own. And uh, the 1998 first edition illustrated by Ted Naismith with the dust jacket Moglor casting the silver into the sea. It's beautiful. So this was really difficult for me to narrow it down to my favorite edition of the Silmarillion that I have. I want to talk about two. I want to highlight two. The first one, which was my favorite up until recently, is one from the early 1990s that was produced by HarperCollins around the time of the 100th anniversary of Tolkien's birth. It's a matching book to the centenary edition of The Lord of the Rings. The spines match up very well. It has gold trim around the dust jacket with ruins on the gold trim in it. It's got John Howe's Fall of Gondolin, which is one of my favorite pieces of art that's been produced by John Howe. Fantastic piece of work on that dust wrapper. That was my favorite up until a few months ago. We did over on the Tolkien Collector's Guide, a site that I am on a lot. I'm one of the moderators on that site. We stumbled upon an auction that had a lot of Silmarillions, both first printings and second printings from a dealer who had kept them locked away, kept them in a dark room for almost 30 years. These books looked brand new. It was like you went back in time and you went into a bookshop in the UK in the 1970s and pulled it off the shelf. I was fortunate enough to get one of the first printings from that auction. And now that one is probably my favorite just because it is a first UK edition. It is a first printing and it is in pristine, perfect condition. Fruta has one as well. He's being modest, but he's got one too. I love that book. I put it in a dark drawer (laughs) for safekeeping. So did I. I put it in a dark drawer with all my other books that I don't want any sunlight at all to get on. My goal is basically to get my hands on a copy of every edition of the Silmarillion in every language that exists, which is probably impossible, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm kind of curious if there's a Braille edition of the Silmarillion. I haven't been able to find information on that. I think there is a Braille Hobbit and I think there's a Braille Lord of the Rings but I'll have to keep doing some research on this Silmarillion because there should be. So Jen, there is a Braille edition of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, you are correct, but there is not a Braille edition of the Silmarillion. Interesting. Well, as far as um, the Amazon series coming up, I think all the hype around that has made 
prices for Tolkien's work in general that's out there go to crazy heights when they don't need to be that expensive. Like I said the other day, I, I saw someone was selling on eBay, I think a third printing of the first US edition Silmarillion without a dust jacket and they wanted $500 for it, which is crazy. <laughs> I, I give you $10 maybe for that. Buyer beware for places like eBay. It can be a great way of finding stuff that's out of print or foreign languages. You can have it set up so it specific search criteria. So you get daily emails from eBay with listings that match. But just, yeah, know what you're getting into and know that people like to throw the term first edition around on stuff that may or may not be a first edition. That's a term that's misused a lot. I will say for our listeners who may want to think about starting collecting or maybe just starting or they want advice, eBay is a minefield of dishonesty. And if you are not sure about something, I would say come over to the Tolkien Collector's Guide at TolkienGuide.com and we'll take care of you. Yeah, Chad, I was actually going to mention that as a very useful resource and a trustworthy one. Some other places to go if you're interested in like the bibliography would be TolkienBooks.us, which is for US editions, and TolkienBooks.net, which is for UK editions. And also, if you can get your hands on Wayne Hammond's and Douglas Anderson's actual bibliography that came out in the early 90s, that is a must-have, and it's a great resource. That's really hard to get. It is a must-have, but that's that one's hard to come by. It's hard to find. It can be a little pricey because it's a beautifully done and authoritative book, even though if it's sadly out of date, I think most of us would love to see an updated edition, but I'm not sure if that will happen. I like the way Chad says... It's hard to get, and it's a must-have. I mean, I have it, but it is hard to get. It probably took me a couple years to track down mine. I think I did find it on eBay at some point. Hammond and Anderson's Bibliographic Guide, it is a must-have, but it's not a necessity unless you really, really want to have every single volume of everything that Tolkien produced, which that's something that's going to take you your entire life to do. But if you want to just collect the big stuff, the bibliographic guide is not a must because you can find a lot of that periphery information on TolkienBooks.net and TolkienBooks.us. However, if you want to do something that's very, very specialized, so let's say that you want to get every single variant and every single printing of the first edition U.S. Lord of the Rings. There were 16 print runs of those. Let's say you want each one of the 16, then you're going to need to get the Hammond and Anderson Bibliographic Guide. But if you just want one and it doesn't matter what printing you want, the guide is not going to give you anything that the any of the wiki sites will not give you. So it just depends on what you want. I was going to talk about too another some other Tolkien books that are generally, I guess, collectible that are not Silmarillion's. One that's really popular is the Ace Paperbacks from the 60s that were the unauthorized American publications. I was lucky enough to find some battered copies at my local used bookstore for cheap. But that's, again, another one you'll see going for really high prices out there. I love the artwork on them. I think it's bizarre and it's great. I don't know where the Pegasus on the two towers came from, but those are popular. And then, of course, the lion cover of the Ballantine paperback of The Hobbit, which Tolkien hated and made them take off. That's fun to find. And it's pretty popular. So the Ace paperback editions of The Lord of the Rings are funny to me. And I know probably Fruita probably feels the same way about this. The Ace paperback editions, they were cheap paperbacks. They were produced. The initial print run was in the hundreds of thousands. They were produced to 
only last a few years. So the fact that any of them are still around is amazing to me. And also the prices that I've seen being paid for them are also amazing to me in the last year or so. And when I first started collecting those, you could find those in every single used bookstore in like the bargain bin for a dollar. Like you could find those everywhere because there were just so many of them out there. So if you are looking for ACE paperback books, do not pay a high price because there were so many of them. You will find a set. If you just want one set, just be patient and you will find a set for a very low price. Also, if you, one of the ways that you can save money on a set like that is just buy them individually. Don't buy the set completed together because you're paying a premium for buying a completed set. Buy them individually and piece the set together and you will pay a lot less than buying a completed set. Yeah, I but saw that listed for, I think, $400 this morning. Which Yeah, is, don't buy those. Don't buy those. Or another area I've discovered is fun to collect where you can find some interesting Tolkien tidbits is um, rare book catalogs from booksellers and auction houses. They're generally very, I mean, among those places that still put out printed catalogs, they're, they can be very educational and from auction houses like Christie's or Sotheby's, they're beautifully produced and they're worth having. Sometimes you can find Tolkien unexpectedly in there. A few years ago, I'd ordered a batch of Quaritch, Bernard Quaritch catalogs from London, and I think from Meg's Brothers from the 60s and 70s. And there's tons of interesting Tolkien stuff in there, although it kind of made me cry a little to see what prices were going for back in the day. A few years ago, I'd ordered a catalog from Christie's. They were having an upcoming auction of fine printed books and manuscripts. And I'd heard that some there was a first edition set, Lord of the Rings, in fine shape coming up for auction, which they expected to go for thirty dollars to $40,000. And there was also an autographed manuscript of revisions to the chapter, The Land of Shadow from Return of the King, which had an editorial comment on it wondering just how far is it to Mount Doom? And it's fun to get the catalogs ahead of time, so then you can check the auction results after the fact. Lord of the Rings did not find a buyer, but the manuscript went for $80,000. And it's just, it's neat to watch how things, what they're expected to go for, what people don't go for at all, and what people pay over the top prices for. So that's also just a good way to learn about book buying and book collecting generally is through book, book catalogs. You can learn a lot about the terminology, which can get really technical, but they're, they're a lot of fun to get. So I have a question for the panel. Let's go around and let's say, if you have something off the top of your head, what is a Tolkien book that you want? What is something that you currently don't have that you would like to have? Yeah, mine is kind of a cliche because everyone wants this, I suppose. But it's the 1982 Super Deluxe Silmarillion, the red letter binding. Beautiful book. Yeah, everyone does want that one. Yeah. Do you have one? I do not. That is on my want list. Yeah, sadly, no, that's not one of the ones I have either. It seems the only collectors that have that one are the older collectors, the ones that were collecting in the 80s and 90s. Those seem to be locked away in all of the older collectors' vaults, and they're, they're not resurfacing. Jen, what about you? What is something that you, what is, what is a book that you are still looking for? I really, really would like the, I think, 1997 Folio Society edition of the Silmarillion, the blue with the ship on the cover. I think it's gorgeous. I would love that one. That's the next one I hope to track down. Oh, I, mean, I love history. So pretty much I would like to get just pretty much the hard copies of like the history of Middle Earth, history of the Hobbit. And I don't know if this maps count because I love, I really 
enjoy looking at maps. I think it's, it really speaks a lot as, as well itself. I'm going to tie in with Dante because right now I'm a bit in, in a Dante mode. I'm collecting all the translations and it's such a amazingly rich history as far as what that's involved with the, with the illustrators who have illustrated and attempted to illustrate the Dante's Hell and what have. But when it comes to with um, Lord of the Rings, I'll probably go that same route as I'm more of the definitely maps and just the history of that. Um, I'm, I love to research. I tend to be more in an academic mode type of thing. So I'm the type of person too that I love reading the book itself. But if I find out there's more behind it, oh, I, I'm going full speed into that. I, I will be your historian for Lord of the Rings as far as, as that goes, telling you about the geography, the type of flowers and what have. Chad already knows this because every now and then he sends me one and it's outrageously priced. But in order for me not to become like all the other collectors I know, I made a rule for myself that I was only going, this is a couple of years ago. I wasn't doing this at first, but I made a rule for myself where I'm, I'm only going to try to get things that are signed by the author or the illustrator. So I, I slowed down on buying the books as soon as I realized that that could be a reality these days. What I do want that I don't have is I want either a Hobbit or a Lord of the Rings signed by J.R.R. Tolkien. And they're, they're unaffordable. And I think I made a mistake in thinking that they may come down a little bit because at first, when he first started sending them to me, they were ridiculously priced and I didn't get one. And now I wish I could find one for those prices because they're what I thought was a ridiculous price before. I just wish I could find something that cheap now. One of the things on TCG that we what we have is we monitor a lot of the auction houses and we will put those auction results up after they are done. And a lot of what comes to the big auction houses are things that are signed by Tolkien himself. Frida knows this, that the auction estimates are always really laughable in the current market because they'll give you an estimate. It'll be 10,000 pounds and $15,000. And we all, all of us sit there and we laugh because the results come in and it's, if it's a signed Hobbit, it can be upwards of $80,000. If it's a signed three volume Lord of the Rings, it can be in the same price range. Signed Hobbits tend to fetch a little bit more than signed Lord of the Rings, but they're very close in the $50,000 to $80,000, $90,000 range currently. We have some theories. We think that there are people with money out there that are looking for places to put their money. They're looking at these as investments, which is probably true. So those of us who collect as a way of life, it's like a lifestyle choice. Like Jen knows this, Fruita knows this, like this is like what we do with our free time. You sort of if you do it for long enough, you concentrate on one thing for a little while and then you kind of move on from that and you switch over to something else. And then there are some collectors who don't ever do that and they just focus on one thing. They devote their entire collecting abilities to that one thing, like Jen with her Silmarillions. I'm more of the first sort of variety of collector. I tend to focus on one particular thing or one particular area for a while. And then I kind of, I see something shiny in the other direction and I kind of focus on that for a little while. And then I come back around to it. Just because I've been collecting for so long now that you kind of realize that there are some things that you want that you have to be patient. Um, my good friend, Jeremy Edmonds, he described it once, I thought really well. He said that being a book collector is like being a snake. Like you sit around and you wait for your prey to come across and it may be days, it may be years before something comes across. But when it comes across, you got to be ready to grab it because it may not come around again for another, depending on what it is, it may not come around again for years, if ever. And so 
one of the things that I've been focusing on the last couple of years is I've been trying to get a complete set of second edition hobbits from the, both the US and the UK. And I'm very, very close. I've only got one left. I've been waiting for been waiting for a while now, well, longer than I thought I would have to wait. It's there are just to give our listeners sort of a little bit of context when Tolkien rewrote the text of mostly of chapter five from the first edition Hobbit to bring it more in line with the Lord of the Rings, it became the second edition Hobbit. And there were several print runs of the second edition Hobbit from the early 1950s through the mid 1960s. They were all produced in the UK, but some of the sheets were imported to the United States and those became the US uh, editions. They were bound in the US, but the sheets were actually printed in the UK. And the only one I'm missing is it's a very specific variant, the 1951, we call it the 5B variant. It's called the 5B variant because it's got subtle differences from the 5A variant. That's the only one that I'm missing. And I have another collector friend who has it and he likes to send me the picture of it every so often to mess with me. (laughs) Yes, it's Lance. It is Lance. That's what I'm focused on right now. And that's what I really want. Frida knows that I'm he, he knows that uh, we've, we've talked about this back and forth too. I, I, one of the things I'm also looking forward to complete is uh, an academic side of Tolkien's work. Tolkien was the, one of the general editors when at his time in Oxford for the, uh, it's called the Oxford English Monogram series. And he was one of the general editors of that series. It's books on a variety of topics. And one of the things that I've kind of more recently switched over is trying to kind of complete that series. And that one's been difficult to complete too. Because I kind of had told myself I wanted to wait until the books that were in fairly good condition, because it's easy to complete if you don't care about the condition of those books. But the books that are in good shape are kind of hard to come by. So I'm still waiting on some of those to pop up. You talk about the patience and all that kind of stuff. See, that's not what I am. I am fully willing to strike like the snake, but... I believe that I'm a little too eager to strike because I am more worried about not seeing things later on. What happened with not buying that? Do you remember? Do you remember what that was that we saw that was signed that you said, here's one. Remember how much it was? Remember what it was when I first started talking to you? It was a Hobbit signed by JRR for $5,300. And I asked, I was like, this seems a little high. It seems like we could find one cheaper than that. And you said, well, they come around sometimes, and we didn't buy it. Now they're like, I wish I could find one for $5,000. But anyway, uh, but see, the, the, the problem with stuff like that is I have this whole completionist thing going on. I know from talking to all of you guys that it's impossible to complete. And so I'd be shelling out house-type money to try and complete this thing. And that wouldn't go over very well for the other people who actually have to live in a house with me. I found that it helps having a list of those books that when they pop up and you really want them, you have you have to strike. And those are the books that are fairly rare, but there is a certain match between price and availability still. I recently purchased a Jemima Kathleen Illustrated Hobbit, a beautiful book. And of course, it, it was pricey, but... That one was on my list, my short list of books that I just knew it doesn't pop up often and the price was fair. So it helps to have a list like that. Yeah, Frida's definitely got an excellent point. If you, it does help 
to have a, Chad Bornhill knows this, helps to have a spreadsheet to organize everything that you both have and want. If you really do get into collecting as a lifestyle choice, like some of us here have, you'll have so many things that you'll kind of forget what you have. You also have done it for so long that you won't remember how much you paid for something or how much you saw something for. And so it's good to keep a, a record of that. It's good to keep a spreadsheet to both see what you have, see what you still want, and to remember how much you paid for something. Keeping record of how much you pay for something is good if you ever intend on selling some of your items one day. I don't know how any one of y'all do it, but I have a spreadsheet of wants that I have uh, categorized in different. I have a column for this, a column for that. I have an academic column. I have, it helps when, like Frida said, when something comes up and you got to grab it, it helps to keep track of all those things that you want. I agree with that. I just started keeping a spreadsheet for just my Silmarillions and I find I'm I'm still working on it, but it's especially helpful tracking the non-English ones where they might be out of print and literally everything I know about them is maybe the cover, maybe an ISBN number if I'm lucky. So that's helping me keep that all straight. I can see where they might be available or if I'm able to buy one, where at who I bought it from and price. But yeah, I'm still working on that method of tracking it all. I believe that your definition, Jen, of new or beginner I mean, from everything that you're saying today, it doesn't sound like you're that much of a beginner. It sounds like you have you have really caught up quickly. No, well, Jen's not. Jen's not a beginner. And the funny thing is, I only finished reading the Silmarillion for the first time earlier this year. I've only that's read it three, that's crazy. I've, I've only read it three times. I thought I would wrap up with a couple of quotes from Tolkien himself on his thoughts on getting the Silmarillion published. First one is from letter 19, which he wrote to Stanley Unwin. And he said, my chief joy comes from learning that the Silmarillion is not rejected with scorn. I have suffered a sense of fear and bereavement, quite ridiculous, since I let this private and beloved nonsense out. And I think if it had seemed to you to be nonsense, I should have felt really crushed. I am sure you will sympathize when I say that the construction of elaborate and consistent mythology and two languages rather occupies the mind and the Silmarils are in my heart. And then probably one of my favorite quotes from Tolkien about his life's work. It is written in my lifeblood, such as that is thick or thin, and I can no other. So I think that will kind of wrap up what I had to say. And thank you very much for having me on. And it's been fun. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Our goal is to create a podcast where the voices of Tolkien fans worldwide can be heard, and that means we want to hear from you, and so do all of our listeners. If you want to get on the podcast, you can go to our website at texastolkien.com. Click on the link that says Getting on the Podcast and fill out the simple form with your name, contact info, and topic that you would like to discuss. And I promise we'll make room for you. You can also interact with us on our Facebook page at Texas Tolkien Talk Podcast, where you can see the latest announcements and happenings. If you want to get in touch, you can drop us a line at texastolkientalk at gmail.com. All your thoughts and questions are welcome. Until next time, folks. Namadier.